But the fact of the matter is this, if you're in Podunk, Idaho, and like five people have Facebook and the rest of the people are still tuning in to uh, local radio and local TV channels, that's probably the place that you're going to be. This is Oversharing with Mikhail Alphon. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, I am super excited about our guest. I first found out about this guy while I was listening to Brittany Crystal's podcast, and then I stalked him on LinkedIn. I've been <laughs> listening to his show ever since and following him on every social media platform I'm on. He's the president and co-founder of Blue Light Media, a digital marketing and advertising firm in Orange County, California. He's a workout nut, an avid <laughs> boxing fan, most important part is he's a Star Wars nerd like me. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mikhail Alphon. What's up, man? What's up, dude? Thank you so much for having me. I want to start by kind of explaining to all of my listeners what it is exactly that Blue Light Media does and how you got started. For sure. So Blue Light Media is a marketing and advertising agency, as you mentioned. We're based out here in Costa Mesa, California, and we work primarily with consumer packaged goods in the natural product space. Really, we take clients end-to-end when it comes to social and digital marketing, right? So first, we'll create a strategy for them. We'll develop all the content necessary, video, written, email, product photography, that whole thing. And then we'll launch paid media campaigns as well as influencer marketing campaigns and then just grow their business and their brand. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm really excited that you mentioned some of those things because those were actually some of the things that, um, that I have questions for you about today. I live in an area, I live in the South. I'm in Georgia. I'm like 45 minutes north of Atlanta, which basically means in the marketing standpoint, we're like five to 10 years behind everybody else in the entire world. <laughs> What are some things that small businesses should think about when they're first starting that are most important to consider when it comes to their marketing? When you're talking about small businesses, just for a little bit more context, is it more of like a retail store or like a restaurant or anything like that? Both are significant, but what I see a lot in my area especially is retail. Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing that you can do is really set up a great customer loyalty program. However, you can get your existing customers to come back in or refer other people. So that can be like a rewards program, like you can get at Starbucks, or I don't know if Starbucks does it, but you know, you get like five coffees and the five fifths ones free type Mm -hmm. of thing. For loyal customers, you know, you can set up different price points. Like if you spend, let's just say $500 within a month, you get a $50 gift card back to the store. If you refer a customer or if you refer another client, you can get $50 back to the store. So working with your current customer base is really the biggest thing. And then if you want to take it to a digital standpoint, I would say find a way to capture their email address and their phone numbers, for example, and then send them regular email blasts. It's still a huge converter. And so like if a retail store or a restaurant is having some sort of sale or a special, you can just connect with them immediately via email. So finding things like this, are really two of the biggest things that you can do, in my opinion, is just working with your current customer base. And it's all about gathering data and remarketing to the people that are already coming in. So 
phone number, email, Instagram handle, Facebook, add them on all those platforms so that you're in contact with them. And then when you publish content on those platforms, they're seeing it. So this is a way that you can work organically so that you don't have to like spend money on ads if it is a relatively small market. And that's really the biggest thing. Set up something in store, gather data, and then remarket to your current customer base. Do you guys ever struggle with people and uh, like a mistrust of information? I see that a lot down here in the South where people are apprehensive to give out that sort of information or they get kind of freaked out when a business shows up in their profile and they were say they were just talking about it in a conversation. At least in this market where I am in, I'm in Orange County, so it's relatively like it's relatively common to like gather email addresses. I mean, I still don't even re- really want to get my email address cause I, or give my email address because I know I'm just going to get spammed. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can, there's a lot of ways you can do it correctly. I think Seth Godin calls it permission marketing. So you're asking mm-hmm. them for their email address, right? So you ask them like, hey, can we get your email address? And what you can expect from this is once a month, you're going to be updated with specials that we're going to have. Or once a week, we're not going to spam you with anything, but we want to have you come in because we value you as a customer and you'll have exclusive deals because of the information that you're giving us right now. So the answer is communication. Yeah, 100%. You got to be transparent on what they're actually going to be receiving. You know, it sucks when CVS, for example, you guys have CVS out there or like Walgreens. Yeah. So like it sucks when like CVS or whatever, you put your phone number in and then you get spammed with a bunch of stuff. You get a receipt that's like 10 feet long. You don't really know why you're giving off that information. For the small business, the mom and pop shops, you can be really transparent about exactly what, you know, the customer is going to be receiving on their end. You mentioned earlier influencers and you talk about a lot uh, using influencers and utilizing micro influencers. Mm -hmm. Can you define for my market, what exactly do you mean by an influencer and more specifically a micro influencer? Sure. So an influencer is really anybody that has influence over a certain community of people, right? So I think uh, one thing that we have to get out of is thinking that influencers are just Instagram models that travel to fucking Greece. We got to get out of the idea that it's just like an Instagram model type of thing. But really, everyone is an influencer to their own right. Even you, Trevor, right? There's probably five or seven people where if you recommended that they buy a product, then they're most likely going to buy it. In the context of digital marketing, yeah, we look at that as YouTube creators, content creators, anything like this with a following that actually cares about the content that they're putting out and they could potentially drive sales. So that's what we define as like an influencer for us. When we talk about uh, micro-influencers and I'll speak specifically in the context of Instagram, you know, we're looking at anybody you know, under 10,000 followers basically as a micro-influencer. When you're working with small businesses that have limited marketing budget, how do they utilize micro-influencers? One of the best ways that you can utilize micro-influencers is for those sales campaigns and some general awareness too. So just to walk you through our strategy a little bit, when we're launching a brand, we'll actually reach out and contract 25 to 50 influencers for that brand. And we can do things like trading them for product. You know, again, we work in consumer packaged goods. So we'll do like product exchanges. And in exchange for that product, uh, we'll ask them to 
post to their Instagram. We'll give them a special deal for their audience to actually purchase that product. So it could be 10% off, $10 off, whatever mm-hmm. you know the brand thinks is appropriate. Um, and then we'll just continue working with them and assess which ones are actually working well and moving product and hitting some of our benchmarks for our brand. And the benchmarks can be anything from gaining more followers to actually selling product. How do you establish those relationships with the influencers? What does that process look like? Because I've tried doing that and reaching out to people with you know larger followings or that have you know influence in this type of market. I struggle with initially formulating that relationship. So how do you guys mm-hmm. do that? There's a couple different ways that we do it. One of the things is try and reach out from the brand's page and not from your personal page, because if it's coming from the brand, it'll feel a little bit more more like, hey, there's a, there's a company or there's a brand that actually wants to work with me. And really, we're just, we're actually just DMing them. And, but we will get pretty specific and add context to our initial outreach in that, you know, it, it'll say like, hey, the influencer's name, we love the content that you're putting out. Our brand is a women's focused CBD brand. And we looked at your content and we thought that you would be a great partner for us. If you're interested in doing you know, an influencer campaign with us, please email us at info at blah, blah, blah.com. You know what I mean? Gotcha. So yeah. uh, something like that. And really it's reaching out to a lot of people. So we'll reach out to like a hundred people, but only like 25 of them convert into an actual partner for us. What is up, you lovely listeners? Sorry to interrupt the episode, but I did want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, MikeMe.com. MikeMe has helped this podcast sound incredible over the last year and a half. And I put out every single episode with 100% confidence that it's going to sound amazing and it's going to be absolutely legit. Not to mention having them work on my show has helped save an incredible amount of time and headache for me. So it's been one of the best investments that I've made in a very, very long time. If you have a podcast or you're looking to start your own, be sure to go to micme.com forward slash oversharing. Again, that's micme.com, M-I-C-M-E.com forward slash oversharing. And you'll get an episode edited for free when you purchase one of their podcast bundles. This is an incredible service. You're absolutely going to love it and you're going to love the team. But before I speak too much, let's get back to the episode. You guys have worked with big brands like Clorox, right? Uh, we worked. We didn't work with Clorox specifically. So they actually have an arm where they work with their with natural products. And we worked with Clorox on brands like NeoCell, Rainbow Light, Natural Vitality. And there's a couple other ones too. But NeoCell acquired all of these brands under the Nutrinext umbrella. And then when they got acquired, we were working with Clorox and their marketing team to, uh, to market their natural product brands. How is that experience similar and different to or from working with the smaller brands and startups that you guys <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is there's like a bazillion approval processes, right? So like we'll create content and we'll create captions or whatever it might be. And it has to go through like seven different people to get approved before we can actually publish that content. So that's really the biggest thing is like the longer turnaround times. And then in addition to that too, you're really dealing with the marketing manager. You're not really mar- dealing with the director or anything like that. So you're not getting too much insight on what the actual strategy is or how you're really doing outside of the available analytics on Instagram and Facebook. And that's kind of a challenge because we like to work with the directors. We like to work with the founders because we're really building that business with them and that brand with them as opposed to just being a vendor. With that being said, we're super blessed to have worked with them for as long as we did. Um, And that experience was awesome because it forced us to like create some processes and procedures that we didn't really have in place at the time. And, you know, we're still building on. 
So that's the biggest difference than working with the smaller brands, you know, but you'd be surprised when we were working with Neocell, I believe they were like about a $30 million brand. They were nationally distributed in Whole Foods, Sprout, CVS, Walgreens, like all these different places. But their marketing team was really only a team of two or three, right? So they really needed us. And we were, but we were able to talk directly with the director of sales, uh, the CMO, these types of things. And we were able to be involved a lot more in the strategy and really build better relationships with them. That's always a lot more fun when we can really work like hand in hand with the people that are making the decisions on what the strategy will actually be. And, and that just kind of goes back to the whole communication thing and, and that that's so super important. Mm-hmm. 100%. Okay. So how do you guys at Blue Light streamline that process for marketing and brand building? When we onboard a client or a partner rather, when we onboard a partner, the fr- one of the first things that we do is we'll have a deep dive with them. And what we'll do in that deep dive is we'll actually determine what's their current state? Like how are they doing on Facebook ads, on social, so on and so forth? And what are some of the things that they're doing currently before actually working with us that is working and that's not working? What can we pour gasoline on and what can we cut out completely? Then once we find out exactly where they are and how they're doing, then we start putting together goals and benchmarks. So that can be sales goals, that can be goals on followers, engagement, whatever it is. So we'll set up those goals. After we set up those goals, then we start developing the initial campaign. So that could be you know, a product-specific campaign or it can be an awareness campaign where we're just like working with a ton of influencers to drive awareness to that brand. And we'll start devising it that way. And it could be a seasonal campaign. It can be, again, it can be a product-specific campaign, whatever it might be. And then once we decide on what the campaign will be, we will then uh, start kind of laying out timelines like okay, it's going to take us a week and a half to put together the brand guidelines and then it's going to take us another week and a half to develop the content and actually set this up for your approval. And then that's when we really get to work and we start producing the photos, we start producing the videos, the ad campaigns, uh, so on and so forth. And then we'll get approval from that client to actually run that. And then when we run it, you know, we'll let it, we'll do our thing, do the optimization, do the community management, and then we'll reassess it at the 30-day, 60-day, and 90-day mark. We usually like to really measure everything on like a quarterly basis as opposed to month to month. Now, in addition to that, we're also creating a clear line of communication and a clear expectation of what we need from them and then what they want from us. So the expectations can be like, Dear partner, we need you to get on these biweekly calls with us so that we can make sure that we're hitting all the points and that you feel supported and adjust the strategy as needed. And then from us, like we will ask them, how are we going to be judged at the end of the month and at the end of the quarter and at the end of the year? Because once we have that down in writing, we're going to be judged on improved uh, CPMs and conversion rates. Great. So that's really what we're focusing our campaigns around and our reporting around, to be honest. In other cases, it could be like, no, we're going to be judged around how easy it is to work with you and how good the content comes out. If that's what it is, you know, it's relatively easy to work with us regardless, but it sets a different mindset on what we're actually providing to that partner. And then we'll also always give our two cents on what we think that they should be hitting as well too. But it's really based around what does that partner want from us? Um, How are they going to be judging us? And then how can we devise a plan to really uh, execute on the goals and benchmarks that they're setting? What would you say to somebody that's investing marketing dollars into traditional media like TV, radio, and billboards? And we kind of touched on this a little bit on the live stream that you did a couple of days ago. 
I wanted to be more specific in that when those things aren't working for the brand, but they're, they're still investing those dollars into those marketing strategies because quote unquote, that's what's always worked. It depends on the market, like where you're at, like it, that might actually work for them. Right. So the thing is they, it just has to be measurable. So mm-hmm. if they can, you know, let's say they're running a radio ad or in a, t- a local television ad, and then they have like a unique URL, right? Like let's, you know, let's just say like it's a, a car dealership and they say, go to forddealership.com forward slash TV three. And now that like that ad campaign is actually being tracked for them, right? So if it's producing results, it doesn't matter. And in some markets that still works. And I think I mentioned on that call, like we actually, uh, we still run traditional media for some of our partners as well too, right? So we'll actually do billboard placements. We'll do uh, print media for local publications. It works really well for certain markets that we're working with in real estate. So it's like, I don't think that's a bad thing, but they also Mm -hmm. have to understand that they might be overpaying for some of that stuff. And it's relatively cheap to run ads on Facebook and get a lot of impressions that way. But it just depends on the area, right? So in a metropolitan area where I live, uh, you know, obviously Facebook, social, Instagram, like all of these things are going to be highly, really effective. But the fact of the matter is this, if you're in Podunk, Idaho, and like five people have Facebook, and the rest of the people are still tuning in to uh, local radio and local TV channels, that's probably the place that you're going to be. You have to be agnostic about where you're going to be putting your ads just because you think that social or you think that TV is working. Just understand like where people actually paying attention. Live activations aren't a bad thing either. If there's community events, for example, um, local farmers markets, I don't know, bingo night, whatever the case may be. (laughs) Like if you can get placement there, dude, put it there. You know, and if you think that's going to be effective, but I think the number one thing is no matter what medium you're putting it on, you have to find a way to actually track it. And it's usually pretty easy with like a unique URL. Um, And if you can find a way to track it and assess that on a quarterly basis and see what's working for you at that point, you can, you no longer like have the argument about what's working, what works for them, blah, 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 because you actually have data to support the decisions that you're making. Right. I love that you said that that um, it needs to be able to be trackable. And I, what I see in these markets here locally is they're using the same URL over every single platform. So it's so difficult to track those things. Yeah, 100%. Thank you so much, Mikhail, for coming on the show and giving all this awesome feedback. I, I really hope that uh, as my show grows, maybe I'll get you on again and we can see where we've progressed from there. Yeah, absolutely, man. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the opportunity.